I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. Basically, impact investing has to be the lever that's long enough to move this world. And this world has 4 billion low-income people in it. So we really need to focus on what are those companies that are going to serve tens of millions of people with quality, affordable products and make sure they get the support they need. And we wake up thinking about that every day. That's Andrew Cooper, founder and CEO of LeapFrog Investments. We spoke about emerging markets, emerging consumers, and managing through the COVID crisis. I'm here with Andy Cooper, coming to us from Sydney, right, Andy? Yep. Welcome to Impact Alpha's uh, podcast. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan. Thank you. You run a team, I know, uh, spread all across Asia and Africa, and I'm sure you've been super busy helping the portfolio company. Just give us the quick update on how things are going in this crazy pandemic. Yeah, LeapFrog itself has been very lucky because, as you know, we raised that record fund for a dedicated impact investor last year, nearly $750 million. And so we, as a company, have been in the very fortunate position that we've been able to focus really exclusively on our portfolio companies. And there are roughly two dozen in the portfolio right now. And the picture is very mixed depending on the country and the sector or subsector. So people give you this broad brush, which would they paint how their portfolio is doing. And I always think that's a little bit silly, right? Uh, because we have pharmacy chains, for example, in East Africa, uh, that are the largest healthcare provider in the region that are doing incredibly well because they're much needed at this time, both in terms of purpose and in terms of profit. We have World Remit, which is the largest digital remitter in the world, where activations have gone up massively, you know, five times since when we invested uh, just two years ago. And then on the other hand, if you own a uh, non-bank financial company or microfinance-style institution in India, it took a long time for the government to come through with the support for micro, small and medium enterprises and with support for those kinds of businesses, as opposed to giving support to the banks or making broader, bolder macro statements. So those companies had a period of stress that is now somewhat easing. Uh, that said, you see the whole gamut. And so what we've been working very hard to do is make sure that we, we live up to our values. One of our values is true partners with the courage to differ. And if you think about that value, what it really means is in the hard times, being there for portfolio companies, CEOs, management teams, and owners, uh, and really working with them, but not shying away from the difficult conversations about what you need to do to make sure the company is sustainable now and thrives post-COVID. And so we've worked very hard on making sure there are stress tests in place, scenario planning built and that people have their vision beyond the next six months to the next two or three or four years so that they can come out of this really strongly. Well, speaking of hard times, I know, I know, uh, you know, sort of one of the, the founding stories of LeapFrog is you started in a global financial crisis. And, you know, here again, we find ourselves in another global crisis. Um, is there anything that uh, kind of your origins or what, what you learned from your own founding that helps you now? Oh boy, how much time do you have? Yes, I'll say very briefly. Um, <laughs> I founded LeapFrog in January 2007. That was about eight months before the term impact investing was coined. But we actually managed to launch, having assembled the whole team and the whole proposition uh, with President Clinton on September 22nd, 2008. And if you think of that date, that was a week after Lehman collapsed. <laughs> so the strongest headwinds at that time in essentially 70 years and a time when people were 
uh, engaged in what was then called, and is still now called, the flight to safety, uh, as if this, the safe thing to do was to rush to dollars and uh, developed markets. And actually, that turns out to have been wrong for those who did it. Uh, what happened is that those who raised capital in emerging markets at that time, and we actually raised, um, for our first fund, our target was only 100 million, we raised 135 million. Those who raised capital at that time were sitting in a situation where asset prices weren't as inflated as they had been, where their investment dollars and expertise were rarely needed. And they were able, we were able, very fortunately, to ride a situation there where you could invest at a decent quantum, come out at a much more significant multiple years later, and really return strong results for investors financially. And at the same time, you're able to put in capital when companies really need it, give them the expertise to weather the hard time, and you form a level of bond with those companies that is quite unusual and really allows you to do a lot more together. So if you look at any of the examples, but one great example would be Bima, um, the mobile micro insurer that we invested in. You know, it had maybe a million customers when we invested in three markets. And by the time we exited to Allianz, uh, you know, well more than three times, um, Allianz X bought in, that was, uh, you know, they'd reached something like 20 million customers across 16 different countries. And they had just ridden this unfolding development in emerging markets of billions of consumers rising and the mobile coming through. And we had been able to come in at just the right time. Well, so there's a bunch of threads here I'd like to pull apart. Like, so the, I think what people think of in LeapFrog, what I think of is that you really did make a bet on these sort of next billion or next four billion consumers, the rising middle class in, in emerging markets across Asia and Africa. And so that story, I, I do want to ask you about that thesis, but I also want to kind of get at something deeper, which is that you actually made a bet that that was going to be not just a growth market, but also a resilient market, that, that there was going to be a sort of risk management aspect to it that um, would make that maybe actually, the, as you said, the better place to invest coming out of that crisis and perhaps maybe coming out of this crisis. That's such a great point. I mean, we had a very strong view. In fact, I launched LeapFrog three weeks after Steve Jobs launched the iPhone. <laughs> I just had this, uh, This is sorry, I founded it. So, so this is when, um, if you think about it, in January 2007, it became apparent that the Grameen phone story of Muhammad Yunus and others was not just a blip, that basically billions of people were going to join the grid and that those people, the first thing they would want, obviously, would be wealth and health. They wanted savings to send their kids to school, insurance if they got sick. They wanted to be able to go to a hospital or a pharmacy and get quality, affordable care. These are very natural things for humans to want as they rise. And so we had the sense that there was a time to invest because half of humanity was joining the grid. And the first thing they would want would be wealth and health. So we invested in financial services and we especially focused on insurance and areas like health insurance and then later moved into healthcare. And if you think about that thesis, it, what was a breakthrough about LeapFrog as the first commercial impact investor? Well, the first thing was this notion of profit with purpose. Now, profit with purpose is a different claim to there's no trade-off. I often hear there's no trade-off, right? There's no trade-off, I don't think is that compelling a proposition for financial investors. The reason is you're saying to them it's the same reward, the same risk, but it's costly for you to learn this new industry and it's unfamiliar. So 
actually it's not the same risk and cost for them, for the institutional investors, right? So we said profit with purpose. This means you're actually going to get better returns and you're going to get greater impact from more profit and more returns because you're going to be able to grow bigger companies faster. So we broke through with that and then we said, but look, that's also a different kind of notion, which it, it isn't just about the returns being higher. It's about the risk being lower in the sense that these companies are more resilient than other companies. So it's not just the good governance of impactful companies that help. But if you think about it, if you're highly customer centric and you're working into a market of billions of customers rising, you're going to be stickier with those customers. You're going to have the support of regulators. And even if you get knocked off some macro trends of 7% growth down to four or one or three or whatever, you're still going to have hundreds of millions of people starting to acquire access. And that demand is still going to be intense. So we think that profit with purpose means there's both higher return and more resilience to purpose-driven companies. And actually, we've just done our 10-year, we've announced our 10-year results. And we think that demonstra they demonstrate quite clearly that that proposition, which at the time seemed like an impossible dream and many people told me was complete rubbish uh, and was a fantasy, you know, we think they bear out that essential truth. We consider all of those characteristics that you just ticked off as uh, elements of what we call impact alpha. So you're singing our tune, of course. Um, and, uh, and, and we're very happy that you have some data points to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> so we can point to you. But... Um, but is that actually playing out now? So when the pandemic shuts down economies, you know, we've we've obviously all heard many stories that it's hitting, you know, small businesses harder that um, that people may have gotten into debt traps with various lenders and now they can't pay it back. And maybe there's you know, that maybe this crisis is different than that crisis in the sense that it's hitting people and customers and, and, and people differently. I mean, it, it, does your theory still hold? I think the theory holds uh, at multiple different levels. So just today, the World Bank has come out with a study showing what their expectations are for macroeconomic growth. And at least their view today, and these things evolve fast, but is that the Eurozone may contract 9%, developed markets 6 and emerging markets 3 uh, Now, if you take out Latin America and some of the, the countries that are hardest hit because we focus on Africa and Asia, you're still going to see growth in those markets. So you're going to, in our markets, so you're still going to see growth versus that kind of massive reduction in developed markets. The irony is that the FT then led with the headline, you know, emerging markets are in huge trouble, essentially, even though the final paragraph said that developed markets were worse off. So this is typical of the kind of perceptual reframing that is needed. If you think of the continued secular trend, it's not that low-income people and people rising in emerging markets, who we call emerging consumers, are going to give up their cell phones. They aren't going to give up their aspirations. Uh, they're going to continue to have this level of demand. And yes, you may have a year or two of receding of one step back, but there's going to be two steps forward. And the IMF uh, has just come out with a report saying emerging Asia is going to grow at 8.2% next year. So 
I think that's at the macroeconomic level. You can see that some of the blaring newspaper headlines, while it's true that there are real fundamental issues faced by emerging markets, are understating the relative issues faced by developed markets. And therefore, if you're choosing where to put your money, you might think emerging markets are a good place to go. The second factor is at the company level. Now, if we look at our companies over a 10-year period, of course, there have been many moments where countries and companies have faced you know, significant problems. They bump into big issues. They face regulatory changes or they face some currency decline or whatever the, the situation is. And we have found those companies to be incredibly, incredibly resilient. I'll give you an example. Shriram in India, we invested in their distribution arm for financial services. Shriram has been oriented towards the bottom of the pyramid for over 40 years. And um, there was a regulatory change that disallowed certain insurance products that constitute a huge part of all the insurers' books. <laughs> and all these other insurers and uh, distributors went and had massive challenges recalibrating and took about two years to change their whole product set and reorganize. Shriram took six months. And the reason they took six months is when I climb into a taxi in Calcutta or Chennai, and I talk to the taxi driver, he or she says, oh, my grandfather bought a product from Shriram. I've trusted them for all these years. So when they come to him and say, listen, uh, we want you to change to this different product, you know, he or, her, or she says, fine, uh, I, I trust you and I'm willing to do that. And as a result, that company was then able to capture much more of the market share at that time and be more resilient. Now, I can tell you a lot of these stories, but fundamentally, intuitively, you have that understanding. But more broadly, you know, regulators tend to be more supportive when you are a purpose-driven business. Customers tend to be stickier. You tend to have staff that are more impassioned and determined to support the company and stick around through the hard times. And overall, we've just seen a level of resilience in companies that's incredibly strong. You make all the sense in the world. On the other hand, as you said, the headlines or the conventional wisdom goes in the other direction. For example, there's been a massive outflow of capital from emerging markets, uh, at least at the outset of this crisis. And then secondly, um, you know, many companies you know, tend to go up market, not down market when when you know push comes to shove and they have to make strategic choices. So you have folks going into emerging markets and or you are going into emerging markets and going effectively down market um, when everybody you're zigging when everybody's zagging. Yeah, and uh, I I think we we need to just be aware that the same thing happened during the global financial crisis. There was an initial massive outflow. The effects of the GFC in developing markets were real, and the effects right now of the pandemic are real. And I would never want to understate, especially with teams sitting in places like Kenya and India uh, and South Africa right now, you know, how difficult and severe this will be for emerging markets. But what I also don't want us to lose track of is that secular trend of the growth of emerging markets and the rise of emerging consumers will continue. And secondly, the relative performance of those markets is the key question for institutional investors. And in relative terms, those markets are still going to perform better than the developed markets. And I think that's really critical to see. And frankly, we're also happy to zag when others zig. We've done that historically. 
uh, and we think that's how you make money and do good. So we're determined that those companies that can really grow uh, in the face of the pandemic and in the face of the fallout, companies uh, that provide, whether it's medications or digital healthcare, like telemedicine, or uh, companies that provide remittances or companies that provide health insurance, those companies get the capital they need to succeed in the years ahead. And there's no reason why that digital trend isn't just going to be accelerated by COVID uh, and its fallout. And there's no reason why those, you know, billions of consumers rising in emerging Asia and Africa are not going to continue to demand them. Some of them may be able to afford less, but most of them are going to have those an awareness of their needs and of the need for things like health insurance and appropriate medication that is increased significantly. So I think we have every reason to believe that the thesis of investing in companies serving emerging consumers is only going to amplify in the coming years, especially if you take the digital dimensions into account. How accepted is the thesis about emerging consumers among say, financial services providers globally? Like, you know, I know you work with many insurance companies, for example, and does 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 the notion that you can make, you know, this sort of fortune at the bottom of the pyramid, the classic, um, the classic uh, treatise, has that become accepted wisdom such that global insurers are targeting that market? Or do you still have to fight that 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 battle? I'd say we've won a lot of the battle. It's not completely won, and there's still a lot of misperception about emerging markets and emerging consumers. But if you look at the fact that LeapFrog's raised 1.6 billion US dollars to date, and that's from, for example, 10 of the largest insurers in the world, as well as big pension funds and the largest DFIs and uh, the largest investment banks, most of them, uh, you, you can see that people have bought into this thesis in LeapFrog, but also beyond that. And that's not just for, you know, he headline reputation purposes on their part. That's that's for business opportunity uh, point of view. Uh, we wouldn't have raised what we've raised if that's the case. And I can point to a lot of other data points, for example, the likes of uh, AXA um, and Allianz have emerging consumer divisions now. Uh, and if you look at the uh, actions of everyone from Unilever, to uh, Alibaba, to Geo, you can see that some of the biggest companies in the world understand that 10 to 20 year horizon because they're thinking in terms of those horizons and they're backing LeapFrog for, for that reason. So not just because of our, our track record. So I, I think that thesis has come through very, very strongly. And I think if you look at some of the outsized successes um, within the LeapFrog portfolio, like Northern Arc in India, that has gone to uh, basically providing finance, wholesale finance, to ultimately over 40 million low-income women, and the likes of Standard Chartered and Fidelity have bought in. Uh, you can see a story there, and neither of those are in our investor base, right? You, you can see the, a, a story there of people wanting access to this mega trend because they do think it's impact alpha. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you have, and you've had a number of successful exits, and one of the questions that always comes up, obviously, is how the impact persists post-exit. 
Um, and presumably if they have bought into the thesis, then the impact would persist because they would you know, be pursuing the similar strategy. Have you, what has been your experience with how things, to the extent you, ma- you, you monitor it post-exit, you know, where do things go when, when, when it's out of your hands? Yeah, again, an area in which LeapFrog was pioneering in the very early days of, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, um, was that we didn't like the model of sign here that you'll keep the purpose driven aspect of this company and then we'll walk away and forget about it. We were always deeply skeptical of that kind of nonsense. So what we have done is make sure that the purpose DNA is built into the essence of these companies such that anyone buying them who then tries to rip out the purpose is going to destroy most of the value in that company. And we actually have a responsible exits framework, uh, which we began to talk about only about eight years ago, but it's been there this whole time, where the investment committee considers, does this sale of the asset actually work for emerging consumers as well as for management and owners? And we've been, as an investment committee, and I'm chairman of the investment committee, applying that responsible exits framework since then. And it's been very interesting to see what happens. But I mean, two things. Firstly, um, your origination, your ability to access great deals goes up significantly because you're saying to CEOs and management teams, we're never going to sell you down the river. (laughs) And although that means that in one or two times, you're going to have to say no to someone offering you more money and go a different way, overall, your portfolio does better because you just have great access. And we've actually seen for LeapFrog, our origination, our proprietary deal flow go up. As you normally get bigger as a, an investment firm, your, the bankers come towards you, so your proprietary deals go down. Ours has gone up to 82% of our deals being proprietary because we're known in market to be the people who won't sell you down the river and who will be your true partners with the courage to differ, right? So that's the first thing we've seen. The second is that we've seen companies like Prudential, AXA, XL, these very big companies, when they've entered markets, so when Prudential UK entered East Africa, um, they bought a leapfrog, uh, sorry, entered Ghana, they bought a leapfrog company. When Swiss Re entered East Africa as a direct insurer, they bought into a leapfrog company. When AXA XL entered India as XL, they bought into a leapfrog company. And that was because they sensed that basically these companies served consumers well and protected them. And what you don't want as the head of a massive business that's managing trillion dollars is to wake up in the morning with your name in the paper for something shonky you've done in Africa or emerging Asia. So you're prepared to pay a premium. And lest you think I'm just saying this as a kind of magical words, we looked at what is the uptick versus where we hold the company. When When we sell an asset, we hold the company at something in our books. What do we sell it to for strategic to strategic investors for? And there's a hundred and two percent uptick versus what we hold it at. And that's because those strategic investors are making two judgments. One is reputationally, this is best for me, and this is a secure business model. And two is I really need access to these billions of rising consumers. Look at all these mega insurers that have now pivoted to Asia. 
and see their future in Asia. The same for the likes of HSBC and a whole lot of big banks, right? They know where the world is moving and they know that Africa is rising eventually. They have different views on how soon, but they know these things. So they're prepared to pay a very significant premium and it shows in our financial results. You've been a kind of a champion of impact investing, kind of getting off of the defensive in a certain way, that folks could actually think bigger. Um, We've been promoting this sort of 10x idea in the context of the pandemic that if impact investing is kind of worth its salt, it should be able to to make some some contribution and, and come out of this as a much bigger force within the finance world. Um, and you've kind of been on that soapbox for quite a while. So, you know, in broad strokes, you know, how does impact investing kind of fulfill its its potential and, and really go, you know, exponential, as they say? Well, yes, I've been standing on the soapbox shouting at anyone <laughs> for a while. I mean, if you think back to 2008, the launch of President Clinton, which you can still see online at leapfroginvest.com, um, we... We stood up and I said, we're going to reach, as did he, we're going to reach 25 million low-income people and generate outsized growth and returns. And we, we actually put a deadline on it because I believe in being held accountable. And we said by the end of the decade, by the end of, the, uh, by, by the end of 2019. And so we've just released our impact results for end of 2019. And against the 25 million people where people told me that's crazy, you shouldn't think so big, et cetera, our companies now reach 205 million people, of whom 164 million are low income. So that's 5% of the world's low income population, right? So that is exponential. That's, you know, six to eight times what we originally envisioned. Now, I love your 10 times. I love that you're pushing us <laughs> even harder. <laughs> um, and, and I think it should be done both on the social dimension. I think 10x of 10x of 205 million, if my math is right, is something like two over two billion. Well, so that's... we haven't committed. So we have actually committed over the next 10 years uh, by 2030 to reach a billion people through leapfrog companies, and we hope that that example and the kind of insights we generate and the collaboration with others will then enable others to reach the remaining three billion low-income people. So we're quite serious about this. I don't mean this as some noble grand plan. I actually mean that we systematically plan out how to do that and we intend to do it, just as we intended originally the 25 million and exceeded it. And if you look at how that is done, it is fundamentally by growing successful scaled companies. It isn't necessarily the case in impact that small is beautiful. I see a lot of role for market enabling and early stage. And I'm a huge fan of a lot of the organizations that do it and close friends with a number of the chief executives. But fundamentally, what we envision is driving growth. And so if you look at LeapFrog's companies over the 10 years, you know, on average, we're making, so we're making investments of say 10 to $60 million uh, each time. And on average, we looked at how much do our companies grow each year? Simple average selecting in every company and just saying, if they've been in the portfolio for two years or more, how much do they grow? And on average, a leapfrog company grows at 32.8% a year. Now, that's the kind of number that would be totally enviable by traditional markets. And if you grow at that pace compounding and you've got significant capital and expertise behind you, you really can change the world in dramatic ways. So we have you know, some of the biggest in their industry, some of the biggest micro insurer, 
remittance, digital remittance provider, healthcare provider in East Africa, whatever these things are, that's millions and millions and millions of people. And frankly, that's the ambition that I sometimes think is lacking in parts of the our, our ecosystem. It's not that we shouldn't do all the enabling and there are massive problems at the earlier stage, but that there are many great ideas and great companies that can be super scaled. And basically, impact investing has to be the lever that's long enough to move this world. And this world has 4 billion low-income people in it. So we really need to focus on what are those companies that are going to serve tens of millions of people with quality, affordable products and make sure they get the support they need. And we wake up thinking about that every day. The lever long enough to change the world. I love it. Thank you, Andy Cooper of Leapfrog Investments. Thanks it's for being with us. Pleasure, and uh, I must say, uh, Impact Alpha is in my inbox uh, regularly, so it keeps me up to date with everything that is uh, that's going on. And I uh, I appreciate the insight because what we're doing is hard. Uh, what other impact investors are doing uh, is hard, and I think the more we can generate those insights and uh, and capture them and share them and work together the more we've got a chance to, to move that world because we're constructing a very big lever together. Well, thank you very much. And we appreciate your insights. So take care. Bye. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. You can read more about Andrew and LeapFrog at impactalpha.com. Subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content, including deal flow, job postings, and a Slack channel. Use the code BRIEFING50 to get 50% off at impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Cooper and our producer, Isaac Silk, who also wrote our theme song. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha.